turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today on the program, we'll hear from David Mathis, author of Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll also talk about the glut of information and the poverty of wisdom that so characterizes our days. But first, to look at some of the day's news. A problem solver, Metropolitan Police Chief Robert Conti from Washington, D.C., gave a simple solution for what D.C. can do differently to get homicides down. Keep violent people in jail. Hmm. He says, uh, by the way, uh, before a murder is committed, a violent um, offender is likely to have committed 10 offenses leading up to that ultimate crime. A living legacy, a woman who has 230 great-great-grandkids, met her great-great-great-granddaughter last month. A recent family photo shows six generations of women and a 98-year-old matriarch meeting her great-great-great-granddaughter for the first time in, a, in Kentucky, and it's gone viral. Seven-week-old Zavia Whitaker met her great-great-great-grandmother, uh, Madell Taylor Hawkins, at a nursing home residence in Kings Mountain, Kentucky, in February. The pair were joined by um, Maydell Hawkins' daughter, her granddaughter, her great-granddaughter, and her great-great-granddaughter. It was really quite something. A delayed deposition. Healthcare organizations are stonewalling on giving depositions, explaining their policies on treating gender dysphoria. And systematic breakdown, the first House hearing on the Biden administration's Afghanistan withdrawal will dissect the stunning failure of leadership. We'll talk more about uh, testimony that was given earlier today before that House panel. Raised concern, a uh, Texas state senator spoke out on her uh, bill banning certain communist Chinese land ownership near facilities of national security in her state. Saying, God called me, a man who fled from North Korea for America, has returned to feed Starving citizens in a credibility crisis when the legacy media famously rejected the covid lab leak theory during the height of the pandemic. uh, Late night hosts were also in sync with that message. The lab leak theory or the theory that the virus came from a leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China was widely dismissed as a conspiracy and fringe theory by pundits and comedians alike. But in recent days, FBI Director Christopher Wray and the U.S. Energy Department have both indicated the virus likely started in the lab after all. Well, since the pandemic arrived in 2020, comedians on ABC, NBC, and CBS have dismissed the theory, appearing not to take it seriously because it was pushed by then-President Donald Trump. I don't support it. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he shoots down media claims that he supports a blogger bill and life imitates art. The BBC has refused woke calls to cancel J.K. Rowling and plan to address transgender anger in a new season of a crime drama they're producing. 
Dismantling DEI, a bill progressing through the Iowa House of Representatives, would halt a woke agenda in the state's colleges by banning diversity, equity and inclusion spending. The legislation sponsor said for too long, the DEI bureaucracies at our institutions of higher education have been used to push a woke agenda on the faculty, staff and students. Iowa State Representative Taylor Collins says under the guise of diversity and inclusion, these programs work to indoctrinate students into their preferred political ideology. House File 616, which passed a House committee last week, would prohibit the state's public universities from spending money on DEI offices or on employees working in positions centered around race, gender identity or sexual orientation. Courses, research, student organizations, and guest speakers on those topics, however, would still be permitted. Paramount importance questions uh, remain unanswered. Nearly 10 years after the disappearance of a Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 and the families of the missing and presumed dead are still seeking closure for their loved ones. The 2014 disappearance remains one of the most vexing mysteries in aviation. The Boeing 777 took off from Kalua Lumpur, heading for Beijing on the 8th of March in 2014 and disappeared around 90 seconds after leaving Malaysian airspace with all 239 of its passengers seemingly gone without a trace. China's foreign minister says conflict with the United States is inevitable because of its recent strategy. The United States should change its distorted attitude towards China or conflict and uh, confrontation will follow. China's foreign minister said on Tuesday while defending its stance on the war in Ukraine and defending its close ties to Russia. The U.S. has been engaging in suppression and containment of China rather than engaging in fair rule-based competition, the foreign minister Ken Gang told a news conference. Well, NBC reports that, in fact, the U.S. uh, side's so-called competition is all around containment and suppression, a zero-sum game suggesting that conflict uh, may be unavoidable unless Washington stops uh, trying to suppress Beijing. On Taiwan, the self-ruling island that Beijing claims as its territory, Ken said it was the first red line in China's relations with the United States, which is Taiwan's most important international backer. Two of the four abducted Americans in Mexico were found dead. The story of four American citizens abducted by armed men after crossing the U.S.-Mexico border into uh, Montemeros last week came as a tragic conclusion on Tuesday morning when Mexican officials announced that two of the four were found dead. The third was alive but wounded and the fourth is apparently in fair condition. Considering the circumstances, two of the four Americans who were fired upon and kidnapped by gunmen uh, there have been found dead, according to the government. The two others were found alive, uh, one of whom is wounded. Uh, it was confirmed. The two living survivors are in the United States. The uh, two who were found dead are currently um, undergoing uh, examination and will be returned to their loved ones uh, in a matter of days. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break and be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Biden looks to raise taxes on wealthy citizens again. Well, the president uh, will seek to raise the Medicare tax on high earners and push for more drug price negotiations to help keep the federal health insurance program solvent through at least 2050 as part of his budget proposal this week. 
The White House says the tax increased from 3.8 percent to 5 percent on earned and unearned income above $400,000 is part of a package of proposals aimed at extending the solvency of Medicare's hospital insurance trust fund by at least 25 years. The White House said in a statement, the budget proposal comes as lawmakers are considering ways to salvage Medicare and Social Security benefits with concerns the program will go insolvent in the next few years. The president has repeatedly accused Republicans of seeking to cut Medicare and Social Security benefits, hoping to use the attack as fodder for the 2024 election cycle, which is just about upon us. Lord have mercy. President Biden supports bipartisan legislation aimed at banning TikTok. The White House endorsed a bipartisan bill that could give the president authority to ban or force all a sale rather of TikTok support that could hasten passage and break a deadlock over how to address privacy concerns around the popular Chinese Communist Party owned app. Well, the bill introduced Tuesday would give the president the ability to force the sale of foreign owned technologies, applications, software or e-commerce platforms if they present a national security threat to U.S. users. It doesn't mention Beijing-based ByteDance Limited, TikTok's uh, uh, by name, but the video-sharing app is the clear target. Senators Mark Warner and John Thune, uh, both uh, one Republican, the other a Democrat, led a group of 12 bipartisan senators to introduce the restricting the emergence of security threats that risk information and communication technology, or restrict Act. The legislation empowers the Department of Commerce to review, prevent and mitigate information communications and technology transactions that pose undue risk to U.S. economic and national security. Well, SoFi has followed, filed rather a lawsuit to continue the student loan repayments. SoFi Technologies is asking a federal court to order repayment by borrowers who aren't eligible for student debt cancellations under the terms of the Education Department's debt forgiveness plan. Millions of Americans with student loans haven't needed to make a payment on their debt since March of 2020. It's the eighth extension of the pause. Beyond the economic and financial implications, the true consequences of the plan are fundamentally moral in nature. The plan goes against the beliefs of the founders and the great thinkers before them who helped create the republic. The nation was constructed on the premises of liberty and responsibility, in particular duty. You don't have to be a philosopher to understand that if you undertake a burden willingly and voluntarily, you have an obligation as a moral person to fulfill it. Such is the true cost of the Biden loan forgiveness plan, the loss of duty to oneself and fellow citizens. When a civilization forgets its foundations of morality, it heads down a destructive path. A quote from the White House press secretary on fentanyl deaths. Because of the work that the president has done, it's at historic lows. I'm not sure you know what fentanyl deaths actually means. White House correspondent Peter Ducey pressed the White House press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, on the dangers drug cartels pose to Americans at the U.S.-Mexico border. On Tuesday's briefing, Ducey accused the president of being comfortable with the cartels operating close to the U.S. as fentanyl and other drugs flow into the U.S. and kill Americans. Karine Jean-Pierre claims success in the fight against fentanyl because of the work this president has done. Overdoses fueled by a surge in fentanyl is the number one killer of Americans ages 18 to 45. National Review reports that both overall drug overdoses and specifically fentanyl overdoses leapt in 2020 and 2021, the most recent years available, according to data from the National Center for Health Statistics. The Fed chair is hinting at raising interest rates again. 
Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell opened the door to a larger half-point interest rate increase this month and said officials are likely to lift rates higher than they previously expected to combat inflation in a stronger economy. In making their, their next rate decision, Mr. Powell suggested officials would pay close attention to Friday's government report on February hiring and next week's report on inflation. Republican and and Democrats on the Hill are clashing over the debt ceiling. Powell told lawmakers that the consequences of not raising the debt limit are hard to estimate, but they could be extraordinarily uh, adverse and could do longstanding harm. Jim Jordan has subpoenaed national school board members to answer for branding parents as domestic terrorists. Representative Jim Jordan issued a series of subpoenas on Monday aimed at senior executives of the National School Boards Association as part of an investigation into the organization's push to have the Biden administration to crack down on parent protesters who they accused of engaging in domestic terrorism. In September of 2021, the NSBA, a nationwide nonprofit that represents 90,000 school board members and 14,000 districts, sent a letter to the president asking him to investigate threats made against educators over policies such as mask mandates. Attorney General Merrick Garland issued a memo in October of the same year to the FBI and U.S. attorneys about the disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation and threats of violence against school board officials. Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray have testified repeatedly that they have not targeted parents voicing concerns at school board meetings, but focused on violent incidents and threats of violence. President Biden's FCC nominee has backed out of the contention after one year. President Biden's pick to run the Federal Communications Commission withdrew her name from consideration on Tuesday. Uh, Gigi Som, whom the White House first nominated in October of 2021, said her decision came in response to unrelenting, dishonest and cruel attacks from cable and media industry lobbyists. She ruffled feathers with her past social media posts and views on certain key issues that prevented the Senate from ever holding a floor vote on her confirmation. The FCC is stuck with only four commissioners leaving an open seat and making it virtually impossible for the president to push his Internet agenda without bipartisan agreement. The Los Angeles City Council pushed to officially make L.A. a sanctuary city. Soon after the president, President Trump, took office, Los Angeles immigration groups demanded that City Hall label L.A. a haven for immigrants in the face of his promised crackdown. The Los Angeles City Council ultimately passed a resolution declaring L.A. a city of sanctuary, a symbolic gesture that offered no legal protections. Well, now council members um, Eunices Hernandez, Hugo Soto Martinez and um, uh, Nithya Rahman want to strengthen L.A.'s laws around immigration. If adopted, the law would be largely similar to one in San Francisco. It prohibits city employees from using city funds or resources to assist U.S. immigration and customs enforcement officers in the enforcement of federal immigration laws, unless such assistance is required by federal or state law. Will migrant families be detained? Well, in an apparent effort to combat the negative news surrounding the president's open border, his administration is reportedly considering reengaging the detention of migrant families caught illegally crossing the border ahead of the May 11th deadline to end Title 42. With millions of uh, migrants uh, prepared to enter the country illegal crossing 
uh, into the U.S. under Biden's watch, directing the flow of migrants rather than stopping it has become his administration's main border goal. Floating the detainment of uh, migrant families for a maximum of 20 days is merely a way to continue the policy while appearing to engage the problem the president has intentionally exacerbated. In other words, the news amounts to little more than smoke and mirrors designed to suggest that something is being done about the border crisis. How TikTok is ruining girls? Well, last week, the um, uh, social media company released a new filter that uh, presents users with a flawless image of themselves. The filter has many folks ringing alarm bells, observing that it will lead to more mental health issues, especially for young girls. Discontentment with one's physical appearance has been recognized as a natural issue for young people and girls in particular. This TikTok filter only heightens that struggle. Dr. Mitch um, Princeton of the American Psychological Association warns that social media is conditioning self-destructive behavior in America's youth. We have 24-7, 365 access to peers on social media, he said. Like mice in a box, we are now literally able to bar press for dopamine as much as we want. That's super concerning. It is literally teaching kids that physical attractiveness is the only thing that really matters. A member of uh, representative of the squad, member of Representative Cori Bush, has anti-Semitic ties that makes her co-squad member Ilhan Omar appear somewhat tame. Her closest private security guard, whom she has paid $137,000 since 2020, happens to be a vehement anti-Semite. Nathaniel Davies III, who goes by the name of Aha Sen Pianki, uh, for his uh, other vocation as a spiritual guru, teaches home gardening as a way to avoid buying food from Jews. On his social media accounts, Davis peddles a litany of anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories, including the claim that the Rothschilds family runs the Western Hemisphere. The fact is, Davis is just one of a long line of anti-Semites with whom Bush associates, and it should come as little surprise given her support for anti-Israel boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. A D.C. crime update on Tuesday, Senate Minority Leader, rather Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, surprisingly sided with Republicans on legislation that repeals the Council of the District of Columbia's recently passed lax crime law. Following Democrat Joe Manchin's support for the Republicans bill, coupled with Joe Biden's uh, statement that he would not veto the legislation, Schumer clearly recognizes that appearing soft on crime isn't playing well with Democrats nationally. However, that reality hasn't stopped the criticism. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi recently weighed in by calling this a win for Republicans against the Democrats' push for D.C. statehood. I understand why some people voted against it, she said, but if the president's going to do it, hey, could you give us a heads up? In the House, apparently for Democrats, expanding political power takes precedence over protecting Americans from surging violent crime. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour, David Mathis, author of Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian leaders. We'll also take a look at the glut of information and the poverty of wisdom that so characterizes our age. Well, the GOP blasted the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, for bias. GOP lawmakers on the House Ways and Means Committee and its Oversight Subcommittee are calling foul over the Internal Revenue Service's tapping of uh, the left-leaning New America think tank to study the feasibility of the IRS creating and running a 
free email tax return program. Representative Jason Smith and David Swikert, they accused the Biden administration of bias, noting that New America is filled with former Obama and Clinton era era officials who bring radically biased points of view that will undoubtedly shade any evaluation of the issues they are tasked to evaluate. End quote. Well, the Democrats Inflation Reduction Act, $15 million, is allowed for an independent third party study of an IRS run e-file system. Uh, Republicans contend that the choice of New America is effectively a means of rubber stamping a program. This is a case of the foxes designing the hen house. Well, House Republican uh, on Wednesday uh, demanded the resignation of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, adding to the swell of demands that he stepped down for his handling or mishandling of the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment and an ongoing probe into his use of private jets. Pete Buttigieg has shown that he is unfit to lead the Department of Transportation and must resign immediately. So says Representative Mike Collins from Georgia on the House floor. From his first day in office, he has been more focused on diversity training and identity politics than on building and maintaining America's transportation system. Collins said he has abandoned his department's mission of improving the safety, technology and efficiency of our infrastructure in favor of promoting diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. End quote. Well, Collins said the East Palestine derailment uh, revealed Buttigieg's priorities as it took him 10 days to respond to the incident. The derailment prompted a decision to conduct a controlled release of toxic chemicals in order to avoid a more dangerous explosion. But residents are still reporting health concerns. Buttigieg took two uh, rather 10 days to acknowledge this incident, three weeks to show up and support the community, Collins says. As Ohioans fled their homes and worried about their health, the secretary of transportation was on TV whining about too many white people in construction industry jobs. His policies have continuously put the woke before the folks, and we are again seeing the consequences again, end quote. The train that derailed in Ohio was a Norfolk Southern train. Uh, And Collins said after another Norfolk Southern uh, train derailed over the weekend that he's worried that companies are paying too much attention to diversity issues and not enough attention to safety. He also said the Biden administration is responsible for this shift in priorities, saying the this administration focuses on DEI is uh, uh, forcing private companies to rethink their goals. And one has to wonder, was Norfolk South DEI policies directly uh, resourced away from other concerns. President Biden yanked agents from the southern border to address the migrant surge from the northern border with Canada. The Taliban has $7.2 billion worth of U.S. military equipment abandoned in Afghanistan, and officials believe a pro-Ukraine group may have sabotaged the Nord Stream. A Georgia nuclear plant has begun splitting atoms for the first time And a beloved children's author says his books were edited without his knowledge to be more current. Chris Rock helps cancel cancel culture in his latest show. Well, on this day in history, 1618, German astronomer Johannes Kepler, he devises his third law of planetary motion. 1948, the Supreme Court in McCollum versus Board of Education strikes down voluntary religious education classes religious education classes and Champaign, uh, Illinois, public schools, saying the program violates the separation of church and state. 1965, the first U.S. combat troops land in South Vietnam as 3,500 Marines arrive to defend the U.S. air base at Da Nang. 
1971, Joe Frazier defeats Muhammad Ali by decision in what is billed as the fight of the century at Madison Square Garden in New York. 1975, on this day in history, the first International Women's Day is celebrated. 1979, the technology firm Philips demonstrates a prototype compact disc or CD player during a press conference in Eindhoven, the Netherlands. 1983, in a speech to the National Association of Evangelicals Convention in Orlando, Florida, President Ronald Reagan refers to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. 2008, President George W. Bush vetoes a bill that would ban the CIA from using simulated drowning and other coercive interrogation methods to gain information from suspected terrorists. 2014, Malaysia Airlines flight MH370, a Boeing 777 with 239 people on board, vanishes during a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, setting off a massive search. To date, the fate of the jetliner and its occupants has yet to be officially determined. The plane is presumed to have crashed in the far southern Indian Ocean. Some have speculated the plane's disappearance was an act of mass murder-suicide by the pilot. 2018, U.S. and South Korean officials say President Trump has agreed to meet with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un by the end of May to negotiate an end to North Korea's nuclear weapons program. Also in 2018, Mississippi lawmakers passed one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the nation, making the procedure illegal in most cases after 15 weeks of pregnancy. A federal judge would later strike down the law as unconstitutional. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, a Chicago grand jury's indictment of Empire star Jussie Smollett on charges that he filed a false report alleging he was the victim of a hate crime is made public. Well, Speaker McCarthy has defended releasing the January 6th video. Each person can come up with their own conclusion, he says. No, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told reporters Tuesday when asked if he regretted releasing the video of uh, the mob's breach of the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Uh, no, I said it the, uh, from the very beginning, transparency. And so what I wanted to produce for everybody was exactly what I said, that people could look at it and see what's going on that day. Look, each person can come up with their own conclusions, but I just wanted to make sure I had transparency, he went on to say, as reporters continued to badger him about the decision. No, I said from the very beginning. Well, McCarthy also cited the one-sided video shown to the public on January on the January um, sixth event by the committee hearing as a reason for releasing the full security video of the incident. The speaker said he consulted with the Capitol Police to ensure that they didn't have security concerns about the video and that their only issue had been addressed before the video was released. CNN, however, didn't seem to have that concern when it com- um comprised security uh, by revealing the secret location where members were taken on January 6th. Because I know at CNN, I mean, I have here where you guys actually broke where we were. This is a secret location, Fort McNair said. Well, the back and forth will continue, but the video is currently available to be seen. It's not clear to me how, with the exception of uh, Tucker Carlson, who I believe has shown excerpts on his uh, television program, But the full content will ultimately be available to the general public. The culminating event of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in August of 2021 was the the horrific attack on Kabul Airport's Abbey Gate. The explosion killed 13 U.S. service members and at least 170 Afghans. 
It also maimed countless more, including 45 service members like Tyler Vargas Andrews. The U.S. Marine Corps sergeant was one of six witnesses to testify today in front of the House Foreign Relations Committee. The witnesses described widespread government failure and carnage, which saw American soldiers and Afghans butchered as the military tried desperately to evacuate U.S. personnel and allies from Taliban-controlled Kabul. We'll tell you more about his emotional testimony when we return, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up later in today's program, a conversation with David Mathis, Workers for Your Joy, the call of Christ on Christian leaders, and a glut of information and a poverty of wisdom. That's all coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, in emotional testimony today, Vargas Andrews described harrowing scenes he witnessed during those final days the withdrawal of Afghanistan, a sniper living out of an airport tower. He saw thousands of people approach the airport attempting to leave Afghanistan, mothers carrying dying children, others suffering from heat exhaustion. He testified that countless Afghans were murdered by the Taliban 155 yards in front of the position. We communicated the atrocities to our chain of command and intel assets, but nothing came of it, Vargas Andrews said, adding that some who were turned away tried to kill themselves on the protective razor wire, thinking it merciful compared to the Taliban torture that they would face. On August 22nd, the sergeant uh, and his fellow service members reported to the chain of command that the enemy performed an IED uh, test run. Days later, they received intelligence that IED threats and a detailed description of a suspected suicide bomber and his um, companion. On the 26th, Vargas Andrews and others spotted a pair of Abbeygate um, matching the description exactly, and they requested permission to engage. The response, leadership did not have the engagement authority for us. Do not engage, he explained, adding that they waited and waited for a response that came too late. Eventually, the individual disappeared. To this day, we believe he was the suicide bomber. Plain and simple, we were ignored, explained Vargas Andrews. Our expertise was disregarded. No one was held accountable for our safety. Later that day, the explosion came. Vargas Andrews lost his arm and a leg, as well as internal organs. He has uh, had 45 surgeries to date. No one wanted to hear his post-blast report, Vargas Andrews said. For him, the withdrawal was catastrophic, and there was an inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. The Trump administration had previously negotiated a deal with the Taliban directly, excluding the Afghan government in the controversial move. The deal set in place fighting restrictions between the two sides, provided for the release of thousands of Taliban prisoners, and promised a full withdrawal of NATO and U.S. troops in exchange for counterterrorism guarantees from the Taliban. Hmm. Well, Biden decided to follow through on his predecessor's commitments. U.S. withdrawal saw a quick collapse of the Afghan government and bloodshed as the Taliban advanced. U.S. Army Specialist Aidan Gunderson was another service member affected by the explosion. I was born one year before 9-11. For 20 years of my life, we were at war, and there I was watching the enemy take over the country's capital, Gunderson explained. To him, other service members and Afghan war allies, the war is far from over. Gunderson said he will relive those final days and the stench of iron and death in the air for the rest of his life. America is building a nasty reputation for a multi-generational systematic abandonment of our allies that we leave a smoldering human wreckage from the, um, uh, the situation in Vietnam to the Kurds in Syria. He, the retired 
Lieutenant Colonel David Scott Mann said, The prevailing image of that month remains the shocking footage of a man clinging to the outside of a U.S. military jet as it is departing, plunging to his death. We might be done with Afghanistan, but it is not done with us, Mann went on to say. Well, according to Francis Hong, executive chairman of the Allied Airlift 21, private charter companies had to step in to evacuate Afghan allies and their families when the U.S. military failed to do so. He was himself evacuated from Saigon, Vietnam, when the U.S. withdrew from the war, explaining that over 80 percent of the Afghans who stood by the U.S. military at great risk to themselves have been left behind. On August 27th, several private companies, including Allied Airlift, organized a desperate journey through Taliban-controlled territory for hundreds of Afghan allies and Americans on six buses. When the buses reached... um, a Mazar-e-Sharif, the private company, spent three weeks hiding the allies and Americans through the generosity of American donors until a privately chartered flight could be organized. More than 350 people were on that September flight, including 128 Americans, 152 children. All are presently safe and free in America. This whole thing has been a... Um, a gutting experience. I never imagined I would witness the kind of gross abandonment... Uh, 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 followed by uh, career-preserving silence of leaders, military, and civilians, Mann explained. He said 73% of Afghan war veterans say they feel betrayed by how this war has ended, adding that he thinks we're on the front end of a mental health tsunami. We fought and we bled to build for 20 years in Afghan special operations forces capacity. And while I know the meta narrative is that security forces withdrew, didn't fight. The reality is that the Afghan special ops did 95% of fighting and fought to um, the very end. Most of them ran out of bullets. Many of them were overrun. I believe that could have been a responsible antibody to violent extremist groups with a small footprint that advice and assist. And I believe we could have, Um, had a different outcome. We could have maintained that kind of support. Mann added that what the U.S. is now left with is 27 violent extremist groups now operating on former NATO security bases with Taliban top cover. The investigation in the the committee will continue in the days ahead. This was the first of what will be a, a series. A federal judge in Florida on Wednesday struck down the Biden administration's use of parole to mass release migrants into the U.S. interior, finding the practice unlawful and accusing the administration of turning the border into a meaningless line in the sand. Judge T. Kent Weatherall, he ruled in response to a lawsuit from the state of Florida, which alleged that the administration, their mass release of tens of thousands of migrants via uh, human uh, parole in the Alternatives to Detention program, known as uh, Parole Plus ATD, is unlawful. In a scathing opinion Wednesday, Weatherall stated that the administration had effectively turned the southwest border into a meaningless line in the sand and little more than a um, speed bump for aliens flooding into the country. Additionally, Weatherall ruled that the, the policies implemented by the administration, including catch and release, had contributed to the degradation of the border as a means to keep illegal migrants out. Today's ruling affirms what we have known all along. President Biden is responsible for the border crisis and his unlawful immigration policies make this country less safe. 
A federal judge is now ordering Biden to follow the law and his administration should immediately begin securing the border to protect the American people. That's a quote from Republican Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody in a statement following the ruling. The administration had been increasingly using parole, which the statute says is supposed to be used on a case by case basis for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit to release migrants quickly into the interior to reduce overcrowding at the border as it deals with historic migrant numbers at the border. Florida contended that the government is violating statutory mandates that migrants be detained. The administration, on on the other hand, had argued that there is no non-detention policy and that it is using its prosecutorial discretion. The evidence establishes that defendants have effectively turned the southwest border into a meaningless line in the sand and little more than a speed bump. Again, the, the judge said in the uh, in the ruling under a wholly in uh, uh, in applicable statute without even initiating removal proceedings, the judge said, siding with Florida. There is nothing inherently inhumane or cruel about detaining aliens pending completion of their immigration proceedings, he said. The judge also sided with the Sunshine State in its argument that it had standing to uh, challenge the policy as more than 100,000 migrants have been released into the state and it has borne significant costs in providing public services to them. The ruling stays the order for uh, seven days to allow for an appeal by the administration, but could potentially have massive implications if there is a surge in migrants when Title 42 ends, as administration officials have previously predicted. Meanwhile, it could soon face a challenge over its recently announced asylum rule as well. That rule, which would automatically make migrants ineligible for asylum if they were um, uh, if they have entered the U.S. illegally and have also failed to claim asylum in a previous country uh, through which they passed has sparked outrage from immigration activists, some of whom have uh, threatened to take legal action if the rule is finalized. We'll continue to follow both stories. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, David Mathis, authors of Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. We'll also take a look at the glut of information and the poverty of wisdom in our culture today. But first... The U.S. is expected to face a complex security environment and will need to work to confront two critical strategic challenges. Rising powers like China seek to dominate the uh, the global landscape and challenges like climate change, which could intersect and intensify their national security implications. That's a quote from the U.S. intelligence community in their assessment. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence on Wednesday released its 2023 annual threat assessment, It warns of threats against the United States posed by China, Russia, North Korea and Iran. It also warned of global challenges like climate change and evolving technologies that could have the potential to disrupt traditional business and society while creating unprecedented vulnerabilities. Sounds pretty hopeful. Well, these two strategic challenges will intersect and interact in unpredictable ways, leading to mutually reinforcing effects that could challenge our ability to respond, but that also will introduce new opportunities to forge collective action with allies and partners, including non-state actors, end quote, the report states. On the area of China, as for the uh, 
the country, the U.S. intelligence community, said the Chinese Communist Party will continue its efforts to make China the preeminent power in East Asia and major power on the world stage. Officials said the Chinese President Xi Jinping in his third term will work to press Taiwan on unification and will seek to undercut U.S. influence by driving wedges between Washington and its partners. At the same time, China's leaders probably will seek opportunities to reduce tensions with Washington when they believe it suits their interests, which is, of course, what any nation would do. The intelligence community warned that Beijing is increasingly combining its growing military power with its economic, technological and diplomatic influence to strengthen the, uh, their rule to secure what it views as its sovereign territory and regional preeminence and pursue global influence. With regard to Taiwan, the intelligence community warned that the PRC is uh, using coordinated whole-of-government tools as it seeks to assert sovereignty over Taiwan. Officials warned that China may build on its actions from 2022 and include more Taiwan Strait centerline crossings or missile overflights of the uh, of the country. Officials also warn that if China succeeds in gaining control over Taiwan, it would have wide ranging effects, including disruption to global supply chains for semiconductor chips because Taiwan dominates production of cutting edge chips. Uh, as uh, as for China's military, the intelligence community said Beijing is accelerating the development of key capability that it believes the People's Liberation Army needs to confront the United States in a large scale sustained conflict. The PLA efforts are designed to deter U.S. intervention in future cross-strait crises, the officials said. They also warned that Beijing is bolstering its domestic defense production capabilities for weapons of mass destruction and advanced conventional weapons. The intelligence community also warned that China is building hundreds of new ICBM silos. Meanwhile, the intelligence community assessed that China will remain the top threat to U.S. technological competitiveness. China is central to global supply chains and a range of technology sectors, including semiconductors, critical minerals, batteries, solar panels and pharmaceuticals. China's dominance in these markets could pose a significant risk to U.S. and Western manufacturing and consumer sectors if the government of China was able to adeptly leverage its dominance for political or economic gain. Then the report turned its attention, and there's more to it than that, to Russia. Shifting to Russia, the U.S. intelligence community warned that Moscow will remain a formidable and less predictable challenge to the United States in key areas during the next decade, but still will face a range of constraints. Russia probably doesn't want a direct military conflict with U.S. and NATO forces, but there is potential for there to occur, the intelligence uh, community assessed. Russian leaders thus far have avoided taking actions that would broaden the Ukraine conflict beyond Ukraine's borders, but the risk for escalation remains significant. Officials assess that Russia will continue to employ military, security, malign influence, cyber and intelligence tools to undermine the interests of the United States and its allies. And as for the relationship between China and Russia, the intelligence community assesses the two states will maintain their strategic uh, uh, ties driven by their shared threat perceptions of the United States. While China represents one of the greatest threats to U.S. national security, officials said Russia, too, presents one of the most serious foreign influence threats to the U.S. due to its intelligence services and influence tools that seek to sow discord in the U.S. and influence U.S. voters and decision makers. There's more to that, but I'll move on to Iran. Officials said Iran will continue to threaten U.S. people directly and via proxy attacks, particularly in the Middle East, and remains committed to developing surrogate networks inside the United States, an objective it has pursued for more than a decade. 
Officials say Iran is not currently undertaking the key nuclear weapons development activities that would be necessary to produce a testable nuclear device, but warned Tehran has accelerated the expansion of its nuclear program. If Tehran does not receive sanction relief, Iranian uh, officials probably will consider further enriching uranium up to 90 percent, the report states. Iran also represents a major threat to U.S. networks and data due to its capabilities and willingness to conduct aggressive cyber operations. Also on that list, North Korea. The U.S. intelligence community assessed that North Korea is continuing its efforts to enhance its nuclear capabilities, targeting the United States and its allies. Officials warn that North Korea's military will pose a serious threat to the United States and its allies by continuing to invest in um, niche capabilities designed to provide Kim Jong-un with a range of options to deter outside intervention, offset enduring deficiencies in the country's conventional forces, and advance his political objectives through coercion. Kim Jong-un remains strongly committed to expanding North Korea's nuclear weapons arsenal and maintaining nuclear weapons as a centerpiece of his national security structure, the report went on to state. Officials also warn that North Korea's chemical and biological weapons remain a threat. The report states that the intelligence community is concerned, and that's in quotes, that North Korea may use such weapons during a conflict or in a, a conventional or clandestine operation. And then they listed uh, climate change and COVID-19 and health security Uh, on COVID-19 and health security. Infectious disease was also included in the assessment following COVID-19 and the global pandemic. The intelligence community said COVID remains one of the most significant threats to global public health at a cost of more than 6.5 million lives lost and trillions of dollars in lost economic output to date, which is at least one reason why it's important to determine how it started. Well, countries globally remain vulnerable to the emergence or introduction of novel pathogen that could cause a devastating new pandemic. As for the origins of COVID-19, the report states that the intelligence community continues to investigate how COVID um, first infected humans. And finally, terrorism, U.S. citizens and U.S. interests at home and abroad will face a persistent and increasingly diverse threat from um, terrorism during the next year, the report says individuals and cells adhering to ideologies espoused by ISIS, Al Qaeda or the trans uh, transnational racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, which is RMVE movement, pose a significant terrorist threat to U.S. persons, facilities and interests, the report states. It said Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah remain committed to conducting terrorist attacks and could seek to do so on U.S. soil. With regard to al-Qaeda, the IC assessed that the threat the terrorist organization poses in Afghanistan will depend on the Taliban. I'm grateful that my future doesn't rest in the intelligence community in the United States or decision makers in the U.S., in Iran, in China, or in Russia. We need to take a break. When we return, a conversation with David Mathis, Workers for Your Joy. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, confidence in Christian leaders has waned in recent years, leaving it in its wake an increased hesitancy for some to submit to church authority. Well, sparked in part by regular reports and even serial podcasts about abuses of power, there's a growing cynicism around leadership. 
But how might our view of leaders improve if everyone from pastors to their congregations experienced eldership the way God designed it? Well, in Workers for Your Joy, the call of Christ on Christian leaders, my next guest, pastor and seminary professor David Mathis, shares a singular, coherent vision of the calling and work of Christian leaders through the lens of the pastoral qualifications of First Timothy Three and Titus 1. He emphasizes that these virtues are not only prerequisites, but daily necessities for Christian leaders to do the work to which God has called them. One of the ways that Christ governs his church and blesses her is by giving her the gift of leaders. And the book aims to paint a vision, not just in broad brushstrokes, but with the fine lines the New Testament gives us, he writes. Within scripture, he says, is a beautiful and countercultural view of leadership. Well, my guest, David Mathis, serves as senior teacher and executive director at DesiringGod.org, a pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, and as adjunct professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He and his wife have four children, and he's offered several books, including Habits of Grace, Enjoying Jesus Through the Spiritual Disciplines. And we're delighted to have him with us here today. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. It's an honor to be talking with you. Well, let's uh, let's talk about what motivated you to write the book. I mentioned that confidence in Christian leaders has waned, but what motivated you to write this book, not just to kind of uh, as a pep talk, but to give us a clear understanding of what Scripture says? Well, Georgine, actually, this is this book's a little strange in that regard. Is that I've been working on it for ten years. <laughs> uh, back in in 2012, I got the assignment at Bethlehem College and Seminary uh, to do the eldership class. And we had a, a textbook for that class, and I would supplement that textbook with some different thoughts. And then as the years went on, and we tried to iterate the class and really meet where the meet the needs of the guys where they were at. I, I started to think of what issues do future pastors need to be trained in so that they're ready for the ministry, they're, they're mature for the ministry, that they haven't just done book learning, but we talked through some of the real practical issues, the conflicts they'll come across in pastoral ministry. And as, as I began to that identify some of those those needs for training, it was remarkable to discover that every one of those needs paired with one of the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It, it, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul knew what he was talking about <laughs> 2,000 years ago. It is, <laughs> it is, it is an, ama- an amazing thing. This timeless list inspired by the risen Christ through the Apostle Paul, largely the same lists in First Timothy 3 and in Titus 15. These are timeless virtues of Christian leaders and Christians in general from the first century down through today. And so it was timeless 10 years ago. And now, 10 years later, when we've been through the ups and downs, the controversies and conflicts related to COVID and various rise and fall stories, it's as relevant as it ever was. And so this is not a response to the last couple of years. It's not a response to expose podcasts. Uh, it's, it's very much what has felt like the need for training future pastors over the course of the last decade. Now, it seems that this late in the game, the year 2022, that we would pretty much as the church have this down. Um, why is it that we need to be reminded of what the original instruction was that can help us avoid so many of the challenges and difficulties that leaders face today? Oh, my, Georgie, that is such a good question. Uh I, I wish I knew the answer. I, I can try to give you some possible hypotheses, but you know, with with each new generation, 
uh, <laughs> we're only one generation away from barbarianism, right? I mean, we, we, we need to teach the next generation. And, and with every new generation, there's different temptations. There's different things that are accented and emphasized. Perhaps you have the business leader model and you think about CEOs and what's, what's helpful in the business world and, and leaders being executive types until a movement comes along where we think about pastors being executives and training pastors as if they're executives. And it's very easy to, to miss the balance or have some things get askew uh, over time. And that, that, that's a remarkable thing about what the, the, the timeless virtues that we have in the New Testament and that even Paul would serve them up so clearly as requisite on local church leaders. In, in, every, church, in every generation, there are various aspects of this list where we're weaker in or stronger in. And it will oscillate from one generation to the next. And so we all do well to go through verses here that we're prone to read quickly, breeze over, not pause to linger over, and to, to study these virtues, study what kind of grace God means to do in the lives of his leaders to make them balanced, healthy, for the teamwork of pastoral ministry in local churches. In the introduction, you reflect on 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and you consider some glimpses that Peter gives of the leadership or teaching office in the church uh, that of a pastor or elder. Can you just review generally um, what those are and how um, how we should view them as we consider what is a, a biblical uh, view of leadership in the church, pastor or elder? That's really good. I, I think apart from 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, one of the best passages in the New Testament about leadership from a Christian perspective, perspective it's 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. Uh, one of the things to notice there is that right out of the gate, Peter addresses them as a team, as plural. I exhort the elders, plural, among you. And this is this is an easy thing to overlook in our context. I mean, there, there were other days in church history where the reality of teamwork in pastoral ministry was very pronounced and even assumed. But I, whether it's the westward expansion in the United States, whether it's the leadership culture of previous generations— we often think of the pastor, <laughs> the, the leader that has his little kingdom of the church. And there, there may be places where that is all they have, a single pastor, and he's doing his best, and it's difficult labor. But there are other places where we've made the decision to highlight a certain leader, always have a certain man in the pulpit, for not to be a team leadership situation, which is uniformly the case in the New Testament. Every time the New Testament talks about local church pastor leaders, it's always plural. It's always a team. So that's one, that they're, they're a team. Also, they're the kind of pastors who are attentive and engaged. They're not trying to shepherd the flock in all the world through the internet or over video. They're engaged in a particular local church context. So Peter talks about the pastor elders being among the people and the people being among them. Another dynamic is leaders are the ones who lean into hardship. You know, Jesus talked about hired hands in John chapter 7 who run when the wolves come. But but real faithful church leaders are those that lean into conflict. They're their most involved, most engaged when there's trouble. They don't run from the trouble. Now, they don't bull rush the trouble and scare people either. They move patiently toward conflict and seek to provide humble, honest, faithful leadership in the midst of difficult times, like many of us have been through in recent years and maybe going through now. And maybe one final one to, to, to accent is the importance of joy. Uh, Peter talks to men who have been called to do this. They feel a kind of internal 
desire to do it. They aspire to the ministry, as Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 3. That's been confirmed in the context of community. There's a particular appointment to the church, and he means for pastors to do their work with joy, not under compulsion, he says, but willingly, as God would have you. So our God is the kind of God who doesn't act under compulsion. He is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases as sovereign of the nation. And he means for his pastors to also be the kind of leaders who want to do the work. They aspire to it. They do it with joy. And they pursue the good, the long-term good, the ultimate joy of their flock. And it gives them great honor and enjoyment to get to do that work. We're talking about the book Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders with uh, David Mathis. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a few moments. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking with author David Mathis, his book, Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. Now, before we um, delve further into the book, let's talk a little bit about the title of the book, Workers for Your Joy, because that may not be altogether clear if you haven't read the book and what the scripture says about that subject, Workers for Your Joy, referring to pastors and elders. That's right. Uh, great question. The, the title, Workers from Your Joy, I mean, there's several places in the New Testament that talk about the importance of the relationship between the pursuit of joy in a holy sense and the leader. But in particular, the place it comes from, for me, is the end of Second Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's in this very interesting relationship with the Corinthians, defending his apostleship, and he's talking about how his leadership among them, he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Second Corinthians one twenty four. So Paul's understanding of his ministry is that he doesn't domineer his people. He doesn't coerce them. He doesn't force them. He works with them for their joy. So he has their joy as defined by the risen Christ, not on their terms. He's not giving in to the whims of the people in, in, the, in Corinth. He's, he's defining joy on the terms that Christ would define it, eternal, deep, joy in Jesus. And he's saying, what we do as apostles is labor for your joy. So if the apostle Paul, as an inspired apostle, a writer of the New Testament who met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, if the apostle Paul, if his own conception of his ministry would be that he works for the joy of Christians, how much more so leaders in the local church? that we'd be called not to lord it over. That's the same language Jesus uses in Mark 10, where he says that the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you, he says to his disciples. You, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the way that Paul does that with the Corinthians, and that pastors do that in their local churches to say, I don't lord it over you. I don't command you. I don't tell you what to do. I labor, and that labor is often teaching, patient, hard work of teaching. I labor to work for your joy in Jesus Christ. Mm. Well, the book is divided into three sections, and you write at the conclusion of the introduction, the God of all grace has appointed that a plurality of mature Christian men who know and love and are able to effectively communicate his word and his gospel lead and feed his flock in the life of the local church. The God who has spoken, particularly in the scriptures and his incarnate word, 
created and sustains the church, a creature of his word, through the teaching and guidance of its leaders. So who are these men? In part one, you uh, turn our attention to the humbled men before God who want uh, uh, before their God what we might call the God word or devotional life. Uh, so you look at the at the humbled. Can you explain a little bit of that section of the book? Yes. So I, one thing I tried to labor with and trying to think through how to structure the book, how to make it memorable, how, how to break it into pieces so it's easier for Christians. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes that list of 15 qualifications goes by us so quickly. Like, wait, what was said? There's, there's so many in the list that we miss it. So trying to think, how do we think about maybe three categories of these 15 plus qualifications for leaders? And so there is a cluster of elder qualifications that have to do with the relationship of the pastor leader to God himself. And so in that section, I talk about the calling to the ministry, what it, how, how Christ calls pastors into the ministry. There's a qualification of not being arrogant. That is utterly vital. And that's, that's a very coordinate expression with being humble, being humble, not arrogant. There is no room for arrogance in pastoral ministry. Often, also in that section of being humble, I talk about how pastors are teachers. This is a uniform teaching across the New Testament that the pastors are those who teach the Word of God, teach the apostolic Word, teach the Scriptures in the church. And so pastors are, are meant to be teachers, not mainly administrators of large departments primarily, but they're to be those who know the Bible well, love the Scriptures, and love to teach people the truth of Christ through the Scriptures. So pastors are teachers, and they're not teachers that teach themselves or are innovative but they're stewards of God's word, which means they're humble. They're humble in their teaching. And then the last sec- thing, last trait to deal with in that first section is what's called sober-mindedness, which is such an important term. Mm-hmm. If the pastors are going to be those who not only decide on the teaching and do the teaching, but, but lead the congregation, they need to have a kind of sanctified wisdom. They need to have Christian common sense. They need to be sober-minded, to have their their brains, their wisdom, so shaped by God's Word and by the Holy Spirit that together they lead the church in a sober-minded way, meaning they keep their heads. We've lived in crazy times in some respects in recent years, and we've seen a lot of people lose their heads in various ways. Not literally, as in the French Revolution, but lose their heads and losing their cool, losing their wisdom, losing their ability to navigate life in a calm and organized way. And that's critical in the pastor leaders of the church, that they be the kind of humbled men who are sober-minded in their decisions. You, in the next section, you deal with um, uh, men in their own homes and private life among those who know them best, uh, that they would, uh, you look at wholeness within the leader. That's right. You know, wholeness is another way of talking about integrity. Uh, it, it's often talked about in, in, in good pastoral circles and seminary circles how, how much these qualifications are related to character. And that is true. The, the heart of these qualifications do relate to character, especially if you put that up against gifting, you know, world-class oratory or executive skills or world-class intellect. The, the qualifications here are very much related to character. So self-control, faithfulness in his marriage. It's literally a one-woman man. It relates to how the pastor deals with alcohol and other substances, how he deals with his own money, and then in particular, what he's like as a father. Uh, is he a distracted dad? Is he an engaged dad? Is he a dad who is making some legitimate headway at home such that he would be trusted to be part of the team that, that leads a church? And so that uh, the organization and leadership of one's own household 
is a testing ground and a, and a way of developing those who would lead in God's household, that's the church. You conclude with um, honorable men before the watching eyes of the church and in the world, exemplary in public life. Yeah, this isn't surprising to most people because these qualifications are very public. And sometimes mm-hmm. they think, oh, you know, if, if the qualifications are about character, you know, self-control, and amen, they are. But uh, pastor and elder and overseer, that's an office in the local church. It's official. It's public. It's irreducibly public. And so how the leader presents himself in public is very important. So there's the qualification of being above reproach, that there shouldn't be any obvious information or any obvious criticism that's part of the, that leader's public reputation. Or there's this qualification of respectable. Our pastors should be the kind of people who make respect easier for the church, not harder. They shouldn't make a pattern of making the church's respect more difficult. Elsewhere, Paul talks about how the church should respect her leaders, and the leaders should do their part to make that respect easier for the church, not harder. Another aspect here is hospitality, which is literally love for strangers. So that relates to inviting people into your home, but also the kind of orientation where uh, pastors would welcome those into the church. They want to meet those in the church, welcome those in the church. They're the kind of people who want to extend the gospel in evangelism, in the Great Commission, in kind of being a hospitable and warm and generous church. And then they're, they're known for their gentleness, which is not a gentleness that is weakness, mm-hmm. but it's a gentleness that's a virtue in addition to strength. Biblically, weakness is not the same as gentleness. <laughs> gentleness is added strength to strength. Those who know how to cushion the application of their strength so that it is life-giving rather than life-harming. The last couple here in the section on honorable is that these pastors are not quarrelsome. They don't pick fights. They don't do, they're not combative. They don't go from one fight to the next. They're willing to take a stand for God's truth, to represent Christ well, but they don't move from one fight to the next, always looking for a fight. They're not quarrelsome. And then the last one, which may be the most surprising, is that what outsiders think. They're well thought of by outsiders, which doesn't mean that the world gets to decide who leads the church. But if leaders in the church have a poor reputation among outsiders, we should ask very carefully, why? Is it because of their own sin? Is it because of a gracious stand they've taken for truth? Or is it because of folly, which is just as foolish on the world's terms as it is on Christ's terms? And, and Paul includes that last elder qualification because of the nature of public office that we want pastors who are honorable mm-hmm. in the church and outside the church. Yeah. Well, I wish we had more time because the book covers so much more and it's worth reading, not only if you're considering the pastorate, but also for churches to better understand what is it that God is calling these leaders to and what we should look for. Again, the book is called Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. David Mathis, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. It was an honor and joy to talk to you. Appreciate it. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. This morning before I left the house, my husband and I had a conversation on the difference between wisdom and information. And the fact that lots of people are well-educated, have access to lots of information. In fact, you can find an AI 
uh, source that can answer all your questions, whether or not they're accurate, but can write a paper for you on a subject you know nothing about. Well, I stumbled upon a column by Wallace Henley. He's an exclusive columnist with the Christian Post, and he's also a former pastor, a daily newspaper editor, White House and congressional aide. He served as a teaching pastor at Houston Second Baptist Church for about 18 years. But he wrote on the same subject, the information glut and the poverty of wisdom. And this is perhaps one of the greater challenges of the times that we live in. Information can distract us and give us the impression that we know more than we actually do. Now, we may have a an impressive uh, set of facts, but we may have very little wisdom as to how to navigate in life in a meaningful way. Well, he writes, we are living through the largest, deadliest scandal in American history, but the elite media refused to connect the dots and analyze it. So opined former U.S. House of Representatives leader Newt Gingrich. He was contemplating the disclosure that the COVID virus that shut down much of the world for several months and gave big government the opportunity to impose uh, unprecedented control over every facet of society, even churches and families, was likely leaked from a chemical lab in Wuhan, China. Gain of function, it's called, in which you create a virus that does not exist, that is so dangerous, and then you attempt to sort of get a jump on what's coming next, and you try to come up with a solution to resolve that um, that uh, gain of function virus. Now, if it makes its way out of the lab on somebody's shoe, it can, you know, shut down the world for a couple of years. But anyway, he continues, it's not just Gingrich, but there's a much there's much consternation over the disclosure that we the people have been had. But in a culture where mere rumor is mistaken for truth and truth for rumor, who should be surprised? We live in an age of information glut that suffer a poverty of wisdom and its capacity to connect the dots analyze, dig deep, and expose implications hidden in a muddle of words. Jesus said that we would know the truth and be set free, liberated from the elite controlling forces and the narratives with which they beguile us. But be they religious or secularist. I wrote recently about the consensus elites and the establishment they form that dictates worldview, values, political correctness, and other mandates of thought and behavior. The woke movement is a prime illustration. The elites who preach and sanctify and approve worldview and values consensus are those of entertainment, information, academia, politics, and corporations. Without deeper thought regarding the information spewed at us constantly, we are puppets at the end of their strings. As it is, they too often tell us stuff and then tell us how to think about that stuff. Well, like the Chaldeans in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, the consensus establishment believes that it alone is qualified to teach promising young people the ways and worldview of contemporary culture. The present tribe of Chaldeans hope we don't dip too deeply. Voices of resistance are pushed from the public square into oblivion. The Chaldeans are happy when we load our heads with cotton candy and have no appetite left for steak dinner that awaits our digging in. Jordan Peterson broke out, broke out of the restrictive chain of gags many uh, in academia have uh, imposed. The Canadian educator and clinical psychologist Peterson was quoted in a Christian Post article that the Bible is way more than true. But in the uh, in the bedrock Western civilization, it's a it's being challenged. Peterson explained to an interview how he thought and uh, changed as um, he contemplated the Bible and civilization, solitude, 
and epiphanies are among Peterson's values because they enable the deep thinking that we've lost in the myriad of 30-second commercials and snaps of the latest news. Wisdom comes from abiding in truth, said Jesus in John 8, verses 31 and 32. This means staying with it till we get it. Spiritually, it means more than a mere devotional reading of scriptures, but continuing in the word, which is the content of learning that produces wisdom. We're no longer contemplatives who listen to the silence and hear profound things. To deal with the contemporary information glut and draw something beneficial from it, we must recover a contemplative lifestyle that focuses on the transcendent and its relationship to the imminent. This is a way that we can continue in Christ's word. Sadly, researchers have discovered an unprecedented drop in a personal Bible reading in America. Lifeway Research reports that only 11% of those surveyed said the Bible, uh, studied the Bible consistently. One of the great values of personal Bible reading means one is propelled into seeking deep meaning, which can get one in trouble with the consensus establishment and the culture it dominates. Though he did not put it this way, Peterson warns people who want to get through the information glut into biblical wisdom, you're going to pay a price for every bloody thing you do and everything you don't do. You don't get to choose not to pay a price. You get to choose which position you're going to take, and that's it. But the outcome is even worse when we don't continue in the word by seeking broad understanding, reflecting on causes and consequences, connecting dots, and extending our effort to understand outside the narrow perimeters of the finite world all the way out to the infinite, transcendent, and the limitless wisdom at the throne of God. Otherwise, we may find ourselves closing our businesses, shutting down our churches, and locking down our schools. In short, suspending our lives just to escape the breeze from Wuhan. A rather interesting observation that really goes beyond the misunderstanding that we have on basic information related to events that have occurred in the last two years, or for that matter, that are occurring today. Well, today happens to be International Woman's Day. And while there's much that could be said about that, I'm a woman, about half of our listeners today probably are as well. I wanted to reflect on one woman that I think has had a profound impact on my life and certainly many others as well. I'm talking about my mom. She's never been photographed in a bathing suit. She's not obsessed with makeup, but she raised a family. She carried her children and she taught us well. International Women's Day. She's a biological woman, and that, I suppose, is a qualifying factor, although these days it's not required. I appreciate my mother because she devoted herself to truth and wisdom, not just gathering information. She would probably suggest that she doesn't know a whole lot, although I would dispute that fact. But my mother was a woman of the word. She taught her children well. She spent time with us. She taught us things that have lasting value and have prepared us for the lives we now live. We and her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It's Woman's Day, and I'm grateful for the woman that has had the greatest influence, impact on my life, not just for this life, but for the life to come. She lived and lives well at 92. We talk a lot about her physical body as it is decaying, but the inner man that is being renewed day by day. And I see in her the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of a life well-lived, one that is committed to Believing and following God's word and trusting him for the days ahead, however many she has left in this life, 
and for the eternity she will spend in his presence, seeing him face to face and being reunited with our family. Thanks, Mom. You are indeed an international woman to be honored and loved. We're out of time. Want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.